This Can Do Podcast is brought to you by Blake Albina Thoroughbred Services. Blake Albina is a full-service bloodstock agency and consignment company representing clients at every major horse sale in the country. For more information, call Ron Blake at 859-396-4836 or Hunsley Albina at 859-621-0800. Whether an experienced owner or a newcomer to the game, Blake Albina has the knowledge and experience to help you achieve your goals in the thoroughbred industry. I got the horse right here, the name is Paul Revere, and here's a guy that says if the web is clear, can do, can do, this guy Welcome back to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing, some history, some handicapping, and some humor. This week, we take a trip down on the farm with Terry Nickel, managing partner at Endeavor Farm in the heart of the bluegrass. We talked with Terry about his life in racing, which began at a very young age, and about what the typical yearly cycle is on the farm. For many of us who are focused on the wagering end of the business, we have some general sense of what goes on at the farm, but I wanted to get a deeper look. What goes on at what times of year, what's involved, for instance, in things like prepping a horse for sale, and the sheer amount of labor that's involved in caring for our equine athletes as they are raised up down on the farm. So, Terry, you literally grew up on the farm, right? Uh, if you don't mind, tell us about that and your background in horses even before you ever started working in the sport. Well, I date back to the summer of 1967 when my mother met a gentleman named Harry Schmidt, and he was part of the management team at a place called Spinthrift Farm. And as luck would have it, my mother wound up marrying this gentleman, and I had the great fortune of growing up at Spinthrift Farm and, and spending all my days around you know, a Hall of Fame roster of horses over there, and, and obviously, you know, 50 plus years later, uh, I'm still doing it. <laughs> so you were, you were fold on spendthrift and you, <laughs> uh, so to speak, I guess in 1968 and that were, there were a lot of great horses that you were around, right? I was actually 10 when we moved over there. Um, okay. The second, uh, my father, uh, died of leukemia when I was very young. And, um, anyway, uh, he was a school teacher. So obviously, I uh, followed in my stepfather's footsteps. Uh, he was uh, obviously a larger influence on me than my father, and I spent all of my childhood and adulthood worshiping him. And he was introduced into the horse business in the Second World War through the horse cavalry. Oh, wow. And uh, spent, spent some time in the Pacific, uh, went to mule pack school, and they had to transport food, ammunition, and everything through the, through the jungles by mule. You know, horses wouldn't work there. So anyway, long story short, he came back to uh, Michigan State and uh, majored or finished up a degree in, in equine science and then came to Kentucky in uh, 1949 and to Spendthrift in 1952 and was there for 25 years. So anyway, I got to tag along with him through all those years there at Spendthrift, and it was just absolutely a uh, highlight of my life to, to, to be around Nashua and Swaps, Raisin Native, Never Bend, and just you know, a Hall of Fame roster of stallions over there. One of the things that I was fortunate enough to, to witness, I don't remember the date specifically, but I can tell you it was sometime when it was very cold in, in the winter of 1970, 
I was in the folding stall when Mr. Prospector was fold. And uh, oh, that certainly is something that I'm very uh, proud to, to share with everyone because there was only one other person besides me, and that was the folding man there at Spendthrift, a gentleman named Clayton Gray. So anyway, wow. Uh, wow. One, you know, absolutely breed-shaping uh, horse he was. Right. And it was a special horse from day one. He was the highest-priced yearling of his generation. You know, obviously, uh, it was a pretty good generation because that was Secretariat's year. It was also Forgo's year. Right, right, right. You know, he was a blazingly fast horse. He wasn't a very sound horse. But uh, anyway, you know, obviously, his race career was second to what he did as a stallion. And, and you know, he and Northern Dancer are probably the two most prolific stallions in the, in the American stud book. Right, because, I, I mean, among others that he threw, uh, Stormcat, correct, is a Mr. Prospector? Um, is that correct? Stormcat, he's by Stormbird, who, that's Northern Dancer line. Okay, 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 all right. But you're right, I mean, you see, I mean, you still see today, I would say less often, but you still see Mr. Prospector as you go back there and look at, you know, a couple of generations back. It's pretty amazing. So... Terry, you know, it is said sometimes that the really good ones, they look that way right out of the mare. And it sounds like, you know, when you laid your eyes on Mr. Prospector, it was clear he was going to be a good one. No doubt. No doubt. He was you know, a, a very special horse. I was young and, and cutting my teeth, you know, in 1970 when this horse was born. But I did spend a lot of time around the yearling barn that following summer learning about prep and sale yearlings. And uh, he was a... You know, he was just uh, an eyeful to look at. Everybody that came to look at this horse, you know, just was was very enthused about his appearance. And, and you know, obviously, being the most expensive horse of his generation that went through the sale ring that year, you know, the, the public thought so as well. And he went on to be, you know, a multiple graded stakes winner. And, and I said, you know, one of the more prolific sires of the last you know, 40 years. And, you know, Terry, you mentioned prepping for the sales ring, and I know that's one of the services that you offer now at Endeavor Farm, which you are the, the manager and owner for. Uh, what, what is involved in prepping a horse, you know, a, a yearling for the sales ring? These are some of the things that I think the, you know, the average person who goes to the track knows goes on, uh, is aware that it goes on, but doesn't really understand exactly, at least, or maybe it's just me, doesn't really understand exactly what does go on on the farm, you know, with these types of activities. So when you're prepping a horse for the sales ring what what are you doing well when we go uh the first thing you know obviously is we want to have the horse in good condition when we start we typically spend about oh 60 70 days prior to the sale we'll put this horse into our quote uh sales prep regimen and we slightly alter their nutrition we'll start pouring a few more calories to them Taking a yearling to the sale is obviously a beauty contest now. Right. So, you know, one of the things we do is, is we keep them, you know, out of the sunlight during the summer so that their coats don't get sun bleached. They're groomed and bathed and their, you know, feet are constantly trimmed. And, and you know, it's just a, a daily process. And what we're trying to do is get this horse a little bit better, a little bit better. You know, he, he's getting better, trying to peak mm-hmm. when he walks through the sale ring you know, two months later after we start. Um, the other things that are, are involved, Bill, are not only is nutrition part of this, not only is the, you know, the grooming a part of this, but also forced exercise. 
Um, these horses are handled you know, daily, uh, hours on end, either through what we call hand walking, where you know, you've got a guy there who's got a shank on the horse, mm-hmm. and, and you just walk and walk and walk. And, and, and people get fit during this process, too. <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah. One, of the, one of the beauties of, of modern technology now is we have these exercise machines for horses, and, and I can put six yearlings in an exerciser, and watch them walk without having people attached to them. And it, it's certainly much less labor-intensive, and uh, the horses are free inside of this. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, uh, a circle that is enclosed on both sides, and the horses just walk around this circle. And there are six, six gates in the circle that provide six stalls, and once oh, or man. twice the horses go around the circle, and they've got it. And this machine will... You know, I can walk them as slow as I want or as fast as I can even get them up to a gallop on this thing, and you can vary the time. And Anyway, the idea is to have these horses, you know, muscular, mm-hmm. fit, you know, looking, looking athletic when we present them at the sale. And like I said, this, this process, we work on them about 60, 70 days to get them there, and, and hopefully when we take this horse to the sale ring, he is at his absolute best physically and mentally uh, the, the sales are also a strain on these horses you know they're accustomed to being able to go out all their lives and you take them to the sale and they're in a stall 24 hours a day up there other than the times that they're out on the show ring and it's tough for these horses mentally as well and you know we want them to go out uh, we teach them how to lead we teach them how to pose we teach them you know all these things so that they're confident when they go up there so that's in a nutshell, that's kind of what we do. And Terry, I would imagine that, you know, one of the evaluations you have to make is, you know, because horses progress at different rates, right? They're ready to debate to debut, I would imagine, at different times. So you must be making an evaluation, an evaluation even ahead of that to say, it's time to prepare this guy for the sales ring or, or this one is going to need more time before we put in the sales ring. Is that is that fair to say as well? Oh, you hit the nail right on the head there. Um, they're all individuals, just you know, just like we are, and and some of them, you know, re- require extra work, extra time. Some of them, you give them three morsels of grain, and they, you know, they puff up like Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and others, it takes, you know, it takes, you know, quarts of grain to, you know, to get them on the right track. So yes, that's a, that's a very astute observation. So, and, and prepping for the sales ring is just one of the things that you do at Endeavor Farms, right? You offer a, a, a number of different services, and I, I wouldn't be so presumptuous, Terry, to say that there's a typical day in the life of a farm, because I would imagine there is no typical day, but it, there must be a typical kind of yearly life cycle of a farm that you, yeah, because I think you mentioned just before we started, you know, recording here, number one, this is, it was late, I guess, but it's it's foaling season, right? Um uh, there must be certain activities that are happening at specific times throughout the year that you're involved in, right? Absolutely. Uh, again, uh, we do not have a, 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 like you said, a typical daily routine, but we do. But our yearly routines are fairly straightforward. Our jockey club deems that you know, horses have a universal birthday of January 1st. So with, with that being in mind, we go into our breeding season roughly the you know the middle of february with gestation being 11 months for a horse so if you breed a mare on you know valentine's day then she should be due on january the 14th of the following year so we do want to try to 
get these mares to get into the shed as early as possible so that they're born closer to their birthday. You can imagine a two-year-old going to uh, the sales there or, or to the races in, uh, in April here at Keeneland, and he was born in January, so actually he's 26 months old, and one that was born in May, who's only 21 months, 22 months old. Yep. So there's a big difference there. But following, uh, following uh, with that in mind, this is also foaling season, so you know, our, our foals are typically born between January and May. So this is an extraordinarily busy time of the year for us. Once that curtails, we go immediately into uh, yearling prep season. And the yearling prep season goes, honestly, from, from about the 1st of May uh, through the end of October when the sales wrap up over at Fazy Tipton with their October yearling sale. Also during that same later time frame, uh, the sales at Keeneland in the fall uh, are breeding stock sales, so we're, we're getting uh, mares ready for that, weanlings ready for that. You finish up with that, and you've got about six, seven weeks, and guess what? It's time for foaling season to start again yeah. in the following. And in between, you know, we try to take in a few races. <laughs> you have time for that, do you? Okay. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, you know, buying mares and, and prepping mares, and we talked about this a little bit before you got, you know, we started recording here, Terry, too. And it's one thing that's always interested me. I, I've seen, you know, headlines about, you know, this race mare sells for X and this race mare sells for Y. And we're talking big numbers, right? I mean, for some of them, like a, like a Royal Delta, let's say, you know, big numbers that these mares could sell for. But and I... I in my own simplistic way, I think to myself, well, she can only drop one a year. But, but of course, a good broodmare is the foundation of a good operation, right? But it, it, that's a tricky read, I would imagine. Yes. And, 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 again, you hit the nail right on the head there. You know, this mare can only give you one a year. And that's if you're lucky because there's so many things that go into getting this mare pregnant and then keeping her pregnant for 11 months. Um, so it is a, you know, it is a very... Uh, slippery slope sometime in buying these mares. We've had we've had great experiences doing it, and we've had some tough experiences. But that's you know part of the game. And we understand that you know there are risks involved with with Mother Nature, and I, we've got a few of us kick around a saying you know every time something you know good happens or something, especially when something bad happens, you know Mother Nature is still undefeated. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. Perfect record, right? <laughs> but but going to the sale and trying to you know to pick out a mare that you think is going to be viable, as you said, maybe as a foundation mare for your operation. Um, you know, there's there's certainly knowledge uh, of pedigrees, knowledge of confirmation. You know those things are certainly helpful, but it takes a little bit of luck too, because or it takes a lot of luck. Honestly, you can you can have the the most beautiful mare in the world with. You know, she's a, a sibling to four or five black-type performers, and she couldn't throw a foal to outrun me. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. And you can go and buy a mare for $5,000, and she's a damn, you know, her first two foals are, are, are graded stakes winners. You know, so uh, a lot of it has to do with you know, good old luck, but knowledge certainly uh, is, is, is a key factor as well. You can increase your odds uh, with with a little bit of, homework. It, Terry, it seems to me that you sometimes uh, hear this, uh, uh, call it an old saw about mares too, that 
Um, some breeders, and correct me if I'm stating this incorrectly, but uh, some breeders prefer to have an unraced mare as opposed to a raced mare. Is that is that am I dreaming that one up, or is that well, real? Or if you look in the catalog, sometimes you'll see a mare that says unraced. You know, for whatever reason, maybe it's confirmation, maybe there was injury. You know, who knows why she did not race? Then you go and, and, and you look on the next catalog page, and you see a mare, and it says unplaced, which means that she ran, whether it was once or a hundred times, and was unplaced. So there's an old saying that a lot of the old hard boot horsemen have around here when they look at that catalog page. And they look at that mare and says, unraced and undisgraced. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's good. I like that. So, you know, obviously sales prep is one of the things that goes on at, at the farm, Terry. You get the, the breeding and the, 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 the foaling going on. What are some of the other things that are going on at the farm that maybe the average player, horse player who's out there at the track doesn't, doesn't really know about? Well, I think the most important thing that they have to, that, that nobody understands is how difficult this game is. Um, we have about 60 mares in residence here at the farm, and if you assume normal conception rates, 55 of those will probably conceive. But of those 55, you know, if you have a really, really good year, 51 or 52 of those will produce live foals. It's just, it's, it's mm. extraordinarily difficult. And the return, the amount of return is not like going and, and, and buying a, you know, stock in GM or whatever. You know, I buy this mare, I breed her, she carries this thing for a year, then it's two more years before it gets to right. the racetrack. Right. And, you know, let's say you pay $200,000 for a mare three years ago, you know, that's, wow. that's a long time before you find out whether or not, you know, you had any success. Yeah. And, you know, they keep asking us, you know, to do it over and over and over again. And without without flinching, the folks that are in this game, we do it. You know, we talked about it earlier. You know, we roll the dice every day. And those kinds of things are what I don't think the average folks understand is, is how much it takes, how much labor it takes, how much, how much time that people devote. These horses, they don't care whether it's Christmas. You know, you better come out here and feed me. Right, it's right. It's 90 degrees. You know, it's 105 degrees. Come out here and water me. Mares fall at, you know, 3 o'clock in the morning. You know, come out and, and help me deliver. You know, it's people devote their entire lives to this, and I'm talking 24-7, 365, and that's what, uh, that's what a lot of people on the outside looking in don't, don't comprehend. Well, it's, you know, it's an interesting point that you make, and I always, I always talk about it on the track, but you're talking about it on the farm, too. It's a very labor-intensive sport, right? There's no shortcut. I mean, the, the, the machine you talked about, the exerciser there, you know, that's probably the rare exception, right? I mean, if you look on the front side, there's a, there's a gate crew, there's outriders, you know, there's all these people involved. And, and on the farm, like you said, every day they've got to be fed, they've got to be watered, they've got to be groomed, you know. Yes, the whole, you know, the whole gamut. You know, we know that... You know, when the horses are up in the barn every day, guess what? You got to go in and clean that stall every day. Right, right. So, you know, it's it's very labor intensive, and there are no shortcuts. When you do try shortcuts, usually they come back and haunt you later on. So, you know, the yeah. easiest way to do it is the right way, 
and you start out that way and even doing things as ideal as correctly using great horsemanship you still lose every now and then you get your rear end kicked well you know mother nature is undefeated yeah well you know as you're saying that too there's another point that occurs to me there's all these things that have to be done every day and all these tasks are required and on top of that um, and I always try and remind people that don't know a whole lot about the sport, the horse has a mind of his or her own as well, right? So you have to figure out how I can work with this horse, right? I mean, that, which is not Absolutely. easy. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And I was fortunate or unfortunate enough to spend a couple of years, when you're talking about horses' minds, spend a couple of years around a horse named Dinoforma. Oh, yeah. And people might remember Dinoforma as Sarah Barbaro. Yep. But, but Dinoforma was an exceptionally vicious horse. You know, he, he'd come after you. He took fingers off of several oh, folks. Man. I mean, literally removed fingers with, with a bite. Oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Holy cow. Uh, and, and he grabbed me a couple of times, and I don't think anybody that spent any time around Dinoformer doesn't have either a story to tell or a scar or a missing <laughs> appendage. And there are other horses, other stallions even, that are – you know, just as docile and easygoing as can be. So they all do have, like you said, you have to kind of get in their mind and know what, you know, each one of them needs and uh, how do I deal with this guy every day? How do I keep him safe? How do I keep myself safe? These guys, you know, 1,200 pounds and, and me against him, he wins every time. Every time. <laughs> Other than Mother Nature, he's the only one who's undefeated, right? <laughs> <laughs> So, so it begs the question: How do you approach? How do you approach a dinoformer? Right? I mean, uh, as a team, you know, with you... caution. With <laughs> caution. caution. The thing that I learned about, you know, with dinoformer, he, he had his quirks, and you just let him do things on his own time. Okay. If you went out to the field, if you went out to the field to bring him into the barn, if he was there at the gate and he had his head over the fence, you know, I could put a shank on him with some hesitation, but I could get a shank on him. Yeah. And he'd come in the barn, and, and, you know, you were always cautious. But if you went out to the field and he wasn't there at the fence ready to come in, you just let him, you know, you pretty much had to leave him alone. If you went in the field with him, he would come after you. And, and it wasn't to play. You know, he meant, he meant to do harm. So anyway, um, and there were other things that, you know, that horsemen around here do. We, we wound up putting a, a special type of a halter on him so that uh, he had a, a chain, literally a brass chain that was interwoven into his halter that, that snapped onto the off side of his halter, which would be the which would be the right hand side of the horse. Okay. And the chain came over his nose, like I said, it was intertwined through the halter and came out on the left side of his halter so that I could just put a snap on him. Took you know two seconds. Okay. Whereas if you had to stand there and, and take a shank, run it over the horse's nose and, and affix it to the opposite side, you might be there, you know, a minute. So yeah. the yeah. idea was, you know, to get get snapped onto him, get him in the barn. And then as as time went on, he, he just got worse and worse for us, or not worse and worse, but he, he became more volatile. You didn't know when he was going to try to do something. So in the end, we wound up handling that horse with two people. Had a man on either side. That's what I was wondering. Okay. All right. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> Jesus. So, uh, Terry, you grew up on the farm, and I believe last time I saw you, you indicated some of your children are following in the family tradition. Is that correct? 
Well, I, my children are certainly interested in what I do, and they, they love coming to the farm. Uh, they, they've spent some time on the farm, uh, whether it's mowing or weed eating or, or whatever. But to say that they're going to actually follow in my footsteps, I don't think that, 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 that there's anyone uh, that's actually going to say, you know what, I'm going to go and, and be at Endeavor Farm like Dad was. Wouldn't be surprised if, if a daughter that's in college right now doesn't go to work for TVG and, and okay. film races or, or do something like that. Okay. Uh, but to actually be out there day in, day out, I don't think that, uh, like my father did, done everything to discourage him. Guys, you don't want to do this. This is <laughs> really hard. It's, you know, it, it takes. You know, my wife is is a saint. You know, I've you know, I've been gone on our anniversary. I've missed birthdays. You know, just all the things that people again people don't understand that you're required to, to be there when needed. And sometimes you're needed when you don't want to be there. And, and quite frankly, this afternoon, if that mayor had, had waited about an hour, <laughs> you would have rang and I said, can I call you back? <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. <laughs> we had, you know, this mayor fold about three fifteen this afternoon. And, uh, anyway, yeah, it, you never know when you're needed and, and what your times are, are going to be required of you to, to be around. And, um, that's one of the things that my dad impressed upon me. You really don't want to do this. You know, you need to go do something else. And, and I was, I was hooked from day one as, as much as anything as, as, as respect and love for, for my dad. But as I got to be around the animals and they're, they're so special and, and they give us everything. People have to understand that you know, these horses all you know, all they want to do is, is is perform and please, and they give us everything every day. They do, and I think I think that's that's really well put, Terry. And I always try and uh, when I'm trying to introduce new people to the sport, I try and impress that on them as well that these are smart animals, um, and they give it they give it their all. You know, they might not win you know, win a race, win every race, whatever, but um, they are all triers. I mean, really, really hard triers. And, uh, you know, we, we, it's, you just had this full um, today, and we were talking a little bit earlier about field sizes, and people complain about field sizes. You know, so you've got a, a new foal today, but you had an interesting take on that, that it's not a shortage of horses that we have. It's a shortage of, go ahead. Shortage of owners. You know, it's, it's prohibitively expensive to have a racehorse. You know, what, what a lot of folks don't understand is you know, most of the racetracks around the United States that are on, you know, on the larger circuits, you know, let's say New York circuit, the Florida circuit, Southern California, most of these trainers are charging roughly $100 a day to train that horse. So you've got $3,000 just to keep that horse in training. That does not include the farrier. It doesn't include anything that involves a, a veterinary need. It uh, doesn't include whether or not you've got a pony going to the track with your horse every day. I mean, it's crazy expensive. And, you know, the average number of starts has gone down. So, you know, you've got a horse in training. He might run he might run a half dozen times a year, and you better hope that, you know, he wins several of those or, or you're, you know, you're upside down real quick. And um, finding people who, who want to be in this sport, and have the wherewithal to do it, it it's, it's, a, it's a major challenge to us. And, and I applaud you know, people like Terry Finley and, and you know, go back to Cot Campbell, who have found a way to bring people in through uh, multiple 
syndicate members, you know, syndicating these horses in, into small groups and, and all these people now, they got a piece of a horse, but they may not have to put up $100,000. Maybe my piece was $1,000, but I've got, you know, 10% of this horse or, or 5% of this horse. And I think that, uh, you know, that is certainly one of the one of the great things that has come into the sport over, the, you know, the last two or three decades is, is these uh, syndicate groups. Well, you know, it's really interesting you mentioned that, especially today, Terry, because I was talking with John Englehart, who you know, uh, earlier today, and John mentioned that very same thing as a key to the growth of the sport. And, you know, I think you made the same point that John did. You, you know, you might only own like 10% of the horse, but you know what? If that horse crosses the finish line first, you're not going to you're not going to sit there and say, well, I got 10% of that. You're going to, your chest is going to be bursting with pride, right? Sure. Uh, yeah. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you know, and, and as, as John said, that lets you experience everything else that's going on at the track too. You know, go on the backside and um, just, you know, familiarize yourself more with the game. I, I actually, last season I interviewed um, TK Kugler who runs Wasabi Venture Stables, which is mostly bred on, uh, mostly based on the East Coast, although I think he's running a string at, um, uh, Oakland this winter and you know he talked about just the, again what you're saying this is just a great way for people to get into the game and see what's going on and be a, be a part of it because you're right it's uh you know when a, when the average trainer is charging a hundred dollars a day then the horse maybe that maybe the horse will race this month or not so you're you're down three thousand right out of the gate that's a tough that's that's a tough sell absolutely and the you know, not only you know, you talk about the expense of that, but you, you go back to day one. Yeah. The expense going through this thing can be, I mean, it can be very minimal. Trust me, there have been as many good horses that have come through the starting gate that don't have blue-blooded pedigrees and were successful as there are that are, you know, that were by, you know, AP Indy or, or, or you know, now Warfront or Tappet or whatever. But, uh, you know, it's just, just unheard of expense. And and very little return sometimes, and no return sometimes. So um, that is that's what I keep coming back to, is you know, just the difficulty of what this is. You better love the sport, and and I can just tell you that everybody is in it, and they've experienced it. They fall in love immediately, and they're hooked. They do. They do. They, I, I agree with you. You know, and you mentioned Terry the number of starts, and I always find that an interesting issue. And I, you know, you've probably you know this one by heart. I've, I tell people a million times. You know, Secretariat started 11 times as a, a two-year-old. You're not going to see anyone in the Kentucky Derby starting field this year of three-year-olds that has had 11 starts. In fact, it, it might take three horses combined to come up with 11 starts in, in, in the starting <laughs> game, right? You know, and, and, and so I know that, you know, I, I hear that some of the trainers, you know, they use the, the sheets, which, you know, talks about predicting peak performances and everything, and they, they space the races based on what the sheets tell them. But I, I heard an interesting theory. I think it was on Steve Bick's show. Steve Bick mentioned that he thought the reduced number of starts was in large part due to when the Daily Race Reform started publishing trainer percentages because his argument was, and I hope I'm quoting this correctly, but his argument was that the trainer then is not going to raise a horse into shape because then his percentages are going to look down, right? He's going to wait until he or she thinks that the horse is primed for a solid performance. Do you, do you agree with that? Do you think that's a factor in there? Yes. Okay. Uh, yes, I think that I think that's that's, that's very accurate. Uh, I can promise you, if, if if a trainer had a barn full of horses that were six to five every day, they'd start more. <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because, yeah, you know, and, and I think sometimes the, the way the conditions are written now, too, as well, to me, has something to do with it. Like, one of my things that always puzzles me about two-year-olds, you know, particularly the, like, a, the Saratoga meet, you know, they'll, you'll have a maiden special for two-year-olds, and you have a ton of them, right? You have two or three of those yeah. a day. Um, very rarely do you see an allowance non-winners of one condition for two-year-olds at the Saratoga meet. In fact, I don't think there is one. Um, they Probably all, not, because all those horses that break their maiden up there, they go straight into the state. Exactly, exactly. And, and are they really ready for it or not? I mean, I, I, I sometimes feel like they're being forced to run too fast, too early, too much too early, as opposed to letting them kind of progress through their conditions, which to me might promote a little bit more longevity as well. I think that that's a, you know, a, a fair assessment. Uh, the other side of, of that coin is also the viability of the owner. Uh, if I've got a chance to, to, to break my maiden at Saratoga and those purses up there were you know, roughly $75,000 for maiden special weights, give or take, and, and then I can come back a month later and I can run this horse for $200,000 in, in the hopeful or, or the spin away up there or something, that's a lot of money. And you see the same thing here. You know, a lot of people talk, especially about like a, a, a meet here at Keeneland in, in April, and you've got two-year-olds that truly aren't even two years old sometimes that are in the starting gate out here, although I think most of them now are. But, you know, you look at those purses out there, and you talk about running for, you know, $70,000, and you've got this horse that's, you know, doing you at $100 a day, and you've got an opportunity to run for this. Well, you know, Let's see if we can't make this thing get into the black. Yeah. Well, and, you know, you, especially those Keeneland and Saratoga meets, you know, you paid 250 you paid 500 for this horse, you know, and you're, to your point, he's costing you $100 a day back in the barn. Let's let's get him out on the track, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, you, you get a horse that's, you know, ready to run, then you look in the condition book and there's no race. Right. And then you're like, Wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's that's a really interesting point. I was talking with a, a New York owner uh, one day who I know pretty well, and we were talking about you know reading past performance lines, right? And and his point was that you start breaking down horses, right? Uh, you know, who, are, who are who are on the track? There's males and there's females. There's two year olds, and then there's three year olds, and then there's four year olds and up, and then there's dirt and there's turf and there's sprints and there's roots. So his point was, you know, how many races are there? And, and then you have to meet the condition that they're in, right? So how many races are there really for the horse to run in in the first place, right? And and what I got out of that was if I see a horse is not really turf bred, but he's running in a non-wears of one on the turf and he doesn't do very well, well, maybe that was because the horse was just ready and the owner had nothing else to, the, the trainer had nothing else to run him, run him in, right? But just couldn't keep them in the, in the stall anymore. You see that frequently. You know, horse is ready to run. This might not be the best spot for him, but he needs to run. Yeah. And yeah. Next, next day you see him in the entry box. We I personally, personally have experienced that. Uh, my partner in Endeavor Farm, Mark Sagalakis, trained in Southern California for a lot of years. And uh, we had a pretty decent filly out there a couple of years ago named Archer Troy. And there were several gaps in her races, when you looked at you know at her performance lines, and you said, well, you know, was was there something wrong? Well, no, we were just waiting for a condition, you know, for a race in the condition book that that we could run, and, and sometimes it was forty five or sixty days. Yeah, yeah, wow. Hey, so Terry, I know you've got busy schedule throughout the year, and you probably are in the midst of preparing for your big Kentucky Derby party every year as well, right? 
I can't wait. You know, <laughs> uh, we have been very fortunate. I have a gentleman that uh, has boarded mares with us since Endeavor's been in inception, a guy from down in Youngsville, Louisiana, named Clyde Taylor. And Clyde was so gracious uh, six years ago to come up and say, you know what, I'm going to cook for you guys for the Derby, invite some friends out. We'll just have a nice, nice evening, you know, I'll I'll bring up you know crawfish and shrimp and and we'll have a big crawfish boil, and that very first year we had I don't know thirty people out maybe just a real nice laid back evening. Uh, now it's exploded into you know 150 folks there. Uh, we have entertainment. Uh, the the food is still the same, just more of it. <laughs> and uh, our uh, our guest list is, has uh, gotten a little little more. Uh, upscale each year. Last year we were very fortunate. We had Mick Ruiz come and join us, and you know he had Bolt Oro in the Derby, and uh, through through some friends of friends, we had Lynn Swan there last year. Uh, you know, Hall of Famer for the Steelers, and now he's uh, the uh, athletics director at USC as alma mater. And um, uh, you know, hopefully this year there's a horse that's uh, kind of under the radar, but on the Derby trail, ran third in the Risen Star last weekend. A horse named Royland. You mentioned him, and uh, yeah. Royland uh, was was bred and raised there at Endeavor Farm. His mother was bred and raised on that same property. Only it was known as Richland Hills at the time. Uh, very much a homebred story. But anyway, this horse picked up ten points last weekend on the Derby trail, and he looks like you know he needs more ground. He. Uh, Kind of has a Silky Sullivan type running style. <laughs> kind of dawdles <laughs> out of the gate, settles at the back of the mm-hmm. pack. And you know, last weekend he passed you know thirteen horses coming down the lane and ran third. And and I, you know, I don't know if you watched the race, but it sure looked like to me in a couple more jumps he would have run by that horse that was second. And you know, who knows whether he would have gotten to Laura Will or not. But uh, you know, the added sixteenth of a mile in next prep race uh, certainly looks like uh, won't be. Uh, a negative uh, for him looks like it'll be a positive, honestly. And should he be, you know, fortunate enough to to pick up another twenty or thirty points in the next prep race, uh, we could see him in the starting gate there in May. It would be an unbelievable. Just, I don't even know if I can wrap my you know, my my mind and my my arms around it to know that uh, possibly a, a horse that we. Uh, bred and raised and his mother's still in residence there could wind up being in the starting gates this May. Oh my gosh, that would be fantastic. And what a great story that would be. Uh, and you're right, he was he was coming hard at the end of the uh, the Risen Star there at, at what, I think like 69 to 1, correct? Uh, that is correct. <laughs> He's not going to be 69 to 1 next time, Terry, right? Let's just get that out of the way right away. <laughs> there you go. We went down, my wife and I went to New Orleans to, to, to uh, Watched the horse run in a Lecompte, and, and it was the same race, only Jock tried to do, you know, what is natural. Most people would have, you know, let's take the, you know, the shortest way around. Kind of got pinned down on the on the rail, and, and honestly, I, I think that, uh, you know, it cost him his momentum because he got checked once pretty good, and, and he may have gotten a little intimidated down there. The horse, like you said earlier, we don't have these guys that have had 10 or 15 starts, and they have the education. Right. It was only, his, I think, his fifth start. So... You know, he, he might have gotten a little intimidated down there. Well, this time, you know, James Graham took him on the outside. He, he never got stopped, never lost his momentum, and he's just, you know, he's coming like a bullet at the end. 
Well, you know, that, and that's a good point, too, um, about horses being inside or outside, because one of the things that I've realized and as I've gone along in this game, there are some horses that just don't, and I don't know if this is the case with him or not, right? But there are some horses that just do not like being inside of other horses. They prefer to be outside of horses, even if they're covering extra ground. And, and the point I, I want to make is, is war of will, to me, there's, it's an open question as to whether that horse really does want to run inside of other horses. Because if you go back and look at his races, he's generally been on the outside. And and mm-hmm. I'll be a believer when I see him run from the one, the two, the three hole in a 14-horse field. You know, And, you know, we'll see what, what, what happens then. But horses are, they are funny. Some of them don't like being inside. Some of them prefer to, you know, don't like being outside. And Le- Lecomte, going back to y- your horse there, I think that was a sloppy track as well that day, was it not? Actually, it, it rained and it was nasty, but by the time that race uh, went off, it was fast. Oh, they went back to, okay, they did. That's right. That's right. Yep. They went back to fast. Um, no, I was, I was just thinking about it because there's uh, somebody, oh, scratched out of a derby prep because they were, they were, having a, they were afraid of a sloppy track. And I thought, well, if you look at the derby, um, there's been a lot of things. <laughs> you, know, you might want to run him over a sloppy track <laughs> so he gets kind of used to it a little bit, right? Absolutely. It seems like the last several derbies have all been rather moist. Well, uh, Terry, you've given us a rooting interest for the, these prep races and, and for the derby, and that's great. And, and, you know, just in general, Terry, really, this has been great. Well, it has certainly been a, a wonderful life for me being involved in this sport, and I think that everybody that's been around this game for any period of time will tell you that it, it absolutely provides you not only with you know, the, the, the greatest highs that you'll ever experience. And, and if you're lucky to catch white in a bottle, it can be extraordinarily financially rewarding as well. But you know, it's, it's just the opportunity to be around such beautiful animals. This, this, this beast known as a horse is just absolutely magnificent. And the places that they have taken us, and I say us collectively as, 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 a, as an industry, me individually, you know, people that I've met, places that I've been to through being associated with this are just um, a memory that will just, you know, never fade. It is just uh, so rewarding, and I'm so blessed. That's that, I think that's the best way to put it. It's just been very blessed. Oh, that's great. That's really well put, Terry. That's really well put. Terry was a great guest and very informative. We're also very appreciative of his and Endeavor's sponsorship of our Big Score segment. And take it from me, if you can ever wangle yourself an invitation to Endeavor's annual Crawfish Boil Derby Week, it is well worth the trip. The Big Score segment of our podcast is brought to you by your friends at Endeavor Farm on Old Frankfurt Pike in the heart of the bluegrass. Every Big Score has its roots down on the farm. Boarding, breeding, foaling, layup care, and sales prep are all services offered by Terry Nickel and his team at Endeavor. You can reach Terry at 859-509-7035 or email him at terry at endeavorfarmky.com. That's E-N-D-E-A-V-O-R-F-A-R-M-K-Y.com. Thanks again to our friends at Endeavor Farm for sponsoring The Big Score. Speaking of our Big Score segment, it comes to us this week courtesy of Mike Mullaney. Mike at one time was the National Features Editor at the Daily Racing Forum and is now a partner at KBM Consultants. Mike is also going to be an interview guest later this season. This big score story is hilarious. I can't think of any other way to describe it than that it starts with a get-well card 
And it ends with a bunch of people getting well, but no card ever being sent. You're going to enjoy this one, too. It was, uh, I believe it was 1990. I was at the racing form just a little bit more than a year, but I had fit in by that point. And there was a fella who worked on a desk. I guess I could use his name. His name was Red Hardchuck. Okay. And Red, Red was not, Red was not well esteemed by the other guys on the desk. He was, he was of that latter generation, 30 years older than me. There were a bunch of guys in their sixties at the time. And, uh, Red was more or less, uh, he never learned about racing. He didn't, didn't like it whatsoever, but it was a paycheck. He got into the writer's guild, so he was impossible to get out, uh, at that point. <laughs> he was in a, un- a he's a union guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 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 And he, uh, Red, uh, Red was, uh, just ostracized. He, when he was on, now you would, you would recall the, the phrasing of the rim where the copy editors would be in a horseshoe-shaped right, right. configuration yep. with the slot guy, the copy desk chief, in the middle. In the middle, yeah. And the copy desk chief would pass out assignments. You edit that, put a one-column 32-point head on that and all that stuff. So Red, at that point, got he was just sent out into orbit. He became, if you remember the old racing form and the old Morning Telegraph, there used to be a section called Reuters News. Yep. And there were also rulings, stewards' rulings. There were also uh, around the ovals. There were things that not everybody read. Uh, it wasn't. There were no narratives. He, he read wasn't allowed anywhere near a, a Barney or Joe Hirsch or Hatton. They, they, they never saw the never saw something like that. So he's in. He's in like an outer orbit, and uh, he he coached a softball team and he a uh, girls softball team. And it actually throw brush up brush pitches little chin music against the girl so it was just, <laughs> he was an unusual guy yes that's unusual wow. yep. and uh so so he broke his wrist and i'm still fairly new fairly naive and i i asked guys i said i want you to give me a dollar don't ask me what it's for and i'm not going to give it back to you it's all right and i got up to about 31 dollars the 32nd guy you know, what the heck i'll tell him what it's for and i said i want a dollar I'm not going to give it back to you. I told everybody else, don't ask me what it's for. I'm going to tell you it's for a get well card for red. And the guy said, I'll have nothing to do with it. <laughs> so at that point, I told the other 31, nobody wanted anything to do with it. So we decided this is back in the advent of uh, simulcasting. Yeah. We had two guys. We were in, this is back when I was in Heightstown, New Jersey. We had two guys going to Garden State Park uh, for Jersey Derby Day. And also they were simulcasting the Met Mile. And the Met Mile was uh, Easygoers four-year-old year. Oh, wow. So we went there, and one of, my, one of my colleagues, Jack Zariah, was tasked with what to put the $32 on. And we decided to, Jack said, I want, we're going to break it up. We're going to put it on criminal type to win, and we're going to make a criminal type house buster straight exact. And son of a gun, that's exactly what happened. Oh, man. And with the easy goer off the board, it paid a whole bunch of money. I, I think it was, uh, I honestly can't remember what it was, so like $300, something like that. And uh, <laughs> so then the guys who made the bet for us, this is, again, this is before online betting or anything yeah. like that. The guys are at Garden State, and they, they uh, call us and say, what do you, we got $350, what do you want to do? And Jack says, let's make another bet. Put it all on something else. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the guy said, all right, let's do that. 
who's going to pick? And Jack says, Mike. (laughs) (laughs) So I gave him uh, a list. I I got scattered like five optional bets and they, they called me names, ridiculed, questioned my masculinity (laughs) and all that. So I said, all right, all right. Everything straight, exact, uh, yonder. And if I remember, uh, uh, what's that horse's name? Kodiak or something like that. Kodiak Kid or something like that. Okay. But a straight exact in the Jersey Derby and son of a gun, the two of them came to the line together. It took like 10 minutes to sort out the photo and we won it. Oh my. So now like each of us had like $350 from a $1 uh, <laughs> investment. And, and we just, uh, we had one guy when Her- uh, Red came back to work, one guy, Harold Tannenbaum, would occasionally lo- would love to bring up the fact that we hit a big score and Red was not part of it. But, but it turned out nothing, nobody even gave Red a card. That's a great story. So Red didn't get well. Uh, Red got well, but he didn't get his get well card, but everyone else got well that was involved in your fundraising effort, which is Yeah, great. and I went to my father confessor about that one on a couple of occasions. Oh, I'm still well. bothered by it. Yeah, well, you know, it does. It's a great story. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Joining us today is our guest handicapper is John McCarthy. John joined us last year to handicap the Breeders' Cup Sprint. John grew up in the shadow of Saratoga Springs and is actually going to be attending the Florida Derby tomorrow. So that is the race that we focused on. And it was a great discussion with John. We talked a lot about jockeys, about post positions. And importantly, which horses look to move forward tomorrow and from here? I enjoyed the discussion, and I hope you do too. It's kind of interesting because as I looked at this year's, uh, you know, race, I'm thinking, you know, who are the who are the horses that are going to go forward from this? Who are who coming into the race good? This is really a good. This is a good prep race. Probably one of the better prep races for the Derby. And you know, I look at and I say, okay, what's Manny Franco, who's by far the leading rider at Aqueduct? Why is he riding pleasure source. Why did Castellano get off? Why I can see why Castellano Rosario's in, you know, in in Maidan. He's you know going to be in Dubai, so he's not on Hidden Scroll. So Castellano picks up that mount. You know, McGay he's got a horse in the race, and Johnny Velasquez is going to stay on that one. There's the winner of the Fountain of Youth. You know, Irad's riding the horse that you know was coming late in that race, and then you got Saez and and, and Irad who are the two top riders right at, at Gulfstream. But I'm looking at Manny Franco. I'm looking at this horse current at 15 to one, and it, and that turf. The only time he didn't run the turf was in a slop, and you know the weather was wet yesterday, but it's going to be dry. And I'm thinking, I'm leaning towards that uh, toward current. I'm leaning because Manny Franco to me. Is coming into his own right now. Oh, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you on that one, John. You know, and I see Castellano, and again, he's got Mott, so there's the connection. Pletcher's won this race three times. Johnny B's won this race three times. Um, but I'm looking at it, and I'm thinking, Franco is riding really well. He could win three or four at Aqueduct, because that's what he's winning a day. He's here. He's here to ride this horse, and J.J., you know, gets off. You know, JJ takes the mount with Hidden Scroll. I I get what you know Johnny B's doing. You know, the race obviously kind of goes through Hidden Scroll because what's he going to do tomorrow? But we've had a couple of discussions on the podcast this season about horses who it seems as if the trainers and big name trainers, Bob Baffert, you know, starting horses on turf and they seem like they're turf head and then they end up in a big dirt race and. 
that seems very unusual for a Pletcher or a Baffert to have that kind of indecision. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I look at this horse and say, this accomplished, you know, graded stakes turf winner, right? What is he doing in this dirt way race when there's surely a three-year-old turf race graded stakes that, that he could be in? And he is one that kind of jumped out at me too, like, because you, you, you got to figure out Pletcher knows what he's doing, and I totally agree with you about Manny Franco. That guy, I tell people he's probably the most underrated jockey out there right now. Um, I believe he's riding really, really well. Yeah. And he's own, he owns the winner. He's owning Aqueduct right now. I mean, he's got like almost 100 wins. So, you know, he's winning three a day, and he's riding really well. And you say, why is Manny coming? And and is this the opportunity? And I and I'm going to use the Tom Brady analogy because you know he hasn't hit the cliff yet. Everybody expects him to hit this cliff. I'm starting to wonder as I see, and it may be because California uh, racing has been, you know, as you know, you're out there mm-hmm. with what Santa Anita. It maybe it's it's that, but and and maybe there's uh, fewer big races and there's more jockeys, and so maybe maybe it's it's that. Castellano's not getting as many good mounts. Maybe his agent's not putting him on as many good horses. But he's seemingly hitting his – he seems to be in decline to me. To me, he seems to be in decline. And I'm a big jockey guy. You know, I thought yep. you meant Pinkay. Yep. Pinkay. I didn't think Pinkay was in decline in 1989. You know? He was not. But I <laughs> wonder right. whether J.J.'s in decline a little bit. I think Johnny V's riding very, very well right now, and I don't think J.J. is, and I don't think Joe Bravo is either. So to me, right now, the two jockeys that are kind of the upper B, lower A tier at Saratoga, Luis Saez and Manny Franco, I think they are right now poised to be top riders. Mm-hmm. And they're riding like top riders. Like Luis Saez is riding like a top. He's very aggressive. You see the way he rides, so he rides him out. He finishes. He rides out and wins the photo for second, wins the photos for third. Manny Franco's doing the same thing. They're riding really, really well. And I don't want to say that the riding style of J.J. is lethargic because he's too good a rider for me to say that because he's too, you know, especially in grade one races, as we've talked before. I mean, he usually, you know, this is a good mount he has today. I mean, Bill Mott, you talk about the traditional route that people take. Bill Mott is normally not known, right, to Mm -hmm. be conditioning three-year-olds for classic dirt distance. Right. 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 Um, but you know, and then Rosario. But I was underwhelmed by his performance in the Fountain of Youth. He was a big favorite, and he just didn't seem like he had much. You know, it was a fast pace, and you know, maybe maybe we'll see what happens in terms of the way the race takes shape tomorrow. But I mean, I think you know he's the speed, and. You know, JJ's pretty good on the lead, so you know he may be able to throttle him properly and and have enough have enough to get the distance. But he wasn't he didn't have enough to get a mile and a sixteenth. Well, he foolishly so, he foolishly chased that what with a ninety nine to one horse in the last yeah. race. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it, it's going to be interesting. Uh, you know, I said earlier that the race goes through Hidden Scroll. I'm sure the instructions are because the same trainer Jamie Mahaya has another sprinter in here uh who is stretching out and i'm sure mott is going to grab jj by both shoulders and say do not chase the mahaya horse right we're not making that mistake again so can he win from you know his only win is in the slop and and you and i both know john those are always a little bit in question right um he uh, 
yeah, it, it, it it's it's very much an open question what's going to happen to him. But he is he is who the race goes through, though, right? I mean, he's the horse you have to make a decision about when you're betting this race. Oh, absolutely. And and then you look at you look at Castellano is this is where he excels, right? Grade one, big races. He he has his best ride. Maybe he's not as maybe part of what I'm seeing in the slide is maybe he's not as good in the lower, you know, the claiming ranks mm. and the allowance. Maybe they don't mean that much to him. And maybe if he doesn't like his position, if he doesn't get in on the turn, if he's out, if he's wide on the first turn on turf, maybe he's just kind of out there riding the horse and, and riding the horse uh, uh, to protect the animal, of course. But you know, not that aggressive style that you see the Ortiz boys. Um, Louis Saez and, and Manny Franco. So now I'm looking and I say, okay, well, he's got a classic horse. Obviously, Bill Mott is a great conditioner. He's a Hall of Famer for sure. That's a good combination, right? They mm-hmm. don't necessarily win uh, at, like, any alarming rate. I mean, they both trade. When they're together, they pretty much do what they do when they're apart, right? 15 20%. Yep. Win, right? yep. I think they're 17%. So, you know, and Rosario, would Rosario have ridden this horse if he wasn't going over to Dubai? I don't know. That's a good question because I don't think they were happy with the ride in the Fountain well, of Youth. Well, I yeah. couldn't have been happy with the ride. Yeah. I, you know, Rosario had, a, had what I consider to be a bad day, right? He, yeah, he did. He had two big favorites and yeah. he didn't win. Yep. Um, he had this one. And I also think that, you know, Rosario didn't give him, because of the, your point about the speed, do he probably didn't like the way, uh, the way the race went, right? I'm sure Mott wasn't satisfied oh, yeah. with that. Yeah. I, but can he stalk and you know? Let's see, can he stalk and close? I mean, there's closers in this race, right? right? I mean, and there's stalkers in this race, and I think that current's going to be one of those. I think Harvey Wallbanger is going to be one of those, and I think Bourbon War. I think the two, three, and four are going to be, you know, in a position to to be able to, if there is a speed duel, to be able to pounce on it in the stretch. Um, I also think that you can't ignore Shug McGahee and Johnny Velasquez. They're going right. to be in a stretch. So you're going to have four or five horses. You're going to you, you got to see what you know. What do you think Saez is going to do with maximum security? He's got to go. He's got to go, and and that's his style too. To your point, that's his style too. He's going to go. Yep. So he's going to go. So you know that's that's going to set up a pretty interesting race. I don't think it's going. I don't think someone's going to go out there and steal this race. But I also think that. There are four or five horses that I know can come off the pace, mm-hmm. and they tend to be good horses leading up to the Derby, right? They tend to be horses to keep an eye on because they have uh, you. You kind of like to see a horse making a move and charging. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also like to have good horses with speed that can go the distance and maybe hold on. And so, you know, last year you saw Justify had everything he could do to hang on in that Preakness, right? Right. And he's lucky that it wasn't a couple yards longer, right? <laughs> but wire is with the wire. Yeah, it, 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 listen, a win's a win, whether you win by a nose or a photo or by open margin. So I think this is going to be a good race. I do. And I think, my, I think the value play, for me at least, is Pletcher, Franco, Current. I like the turf uh, to dirt angle. Um, I like the fact that in the one dirt outing, there's a trouble line. Yeah. Yep. It's a slippery track. Yep. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree so with you. I don't know that we really know. And I, to your point about Todd Fletcher, Todd Fletcher knows more than, you know, like Bill Belichick knows more than I do about his defense <laughs> because I thought he was done as a defensive coordinator. Yeah. I yeah. thought his defense brilliance went away. And he definitely proved to me that he's still a defensive genius by the way that Patriots defense woke up in the postseason. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it was it right? So then I realized, you know, Belichick knows football better than I do. And Pletcher knows horses better than I do. And Pletcher's won this race three times. And he knows what it takes to win this race. And, it, and you'd think in previous years, like, Pletcher might have three, four, five, six horses that could be derby candidates, and which means they'd all be Florida derby candidates. And this is the one he's got. This is the one he's got for this day, this race. And so, you know, I'm thinking current could could light up the tote board. I don't think he'll go off 15 to 1. I hope he does because I'm going to bet him. You know what, John? I, I bet he's going to go off north of it. I really do. Uh, and if you can get Todd Pletcher north of 15 to 1, we'll see. It'll be interesting to see who's right about it. Uh, if you can get Todd Pletcher north of 15 to 1, you might as well bet it, right? I mean, uh, even if you. You know, didn't like the horse, but I, I agree with you. He's he's one who he caught my eye. Um, look, everyone's going to be on Tin Scroll Bourbon War, the the McGahee horse. Um, right. They're all you know, uh, and I won't try and make a prediction about what the odds are going to be there. But this one stood with me because I'm not even sure his turf breeding is that great, to be honest with you. Um, you know, and like look, like we talked about a, a Pletcher, you know. And by the way, these are not connections that let's take a shot here. This is Lapenta and Eclipse Thoroughbred. These these are people that know what they're doing. So, hire is Curlin. They pay three quarters of a million dollars for the horse. Yeah, yeah, exactly, e- exactly. And you know, I, I want to go back to something you said about JJ because it occurred to me, and I'm gonna I'm gonna state a blasphemy here, but to me, the last I don't know how many years of his career, uh, Jerry Bailey who was the big money jockey and the big races and everything, I felt like in the day-to-day races, he read the form before the race and decided where he thought the horse was going to finish. And he rode him, you know, to get to him to, to the limit. He rode toward the end game. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. And I wonder if that doesn't happen with some of these guys as they get a little older. You know, they're looking and say, well, you know. And obviously this is a big money race. But but to your point about J.J. and some of the day-to-day races, I wonder if, you know, is it does that happen with some of these guys that they get to the point where they're like, well, you know, he's probably no better than the third-place finish. So I'm not going to really hit him hard down the stretch, let's say. You know, I, I don't know. It, it's an interesting thought, though. Well, a B rider would love to have – would love to win in the high teens. Mm-hmm. But J.J. has, would you say, probably over the last decade or two, he's been a 20%-plus yeah, twenty. Rate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And him to be riding, and, and he's not riding. If you look, and I and I, he's one of my watch jocks, so I'm every day I'm getting a little bing in the morning and say, okay, well, how many has he got today? Where is he? I'm five, follow where he is. And, you know, he's racing, what, three or four times a day. He'll, he'll have more mounts tomorrow on a big day. And, and, and you're right. He may, he may get up tomorrow, uh, you know, do the Rocky theme song, drink the raw egg, <laughs> and be ready to, you know, to be great. And he is great. And I don't want to take anything away from him. But, you know, it, maybe it is Manny Franco and Louis Saez this time. Maybe, you know, Johnny Velasquez, I think, has been riding very, very well. Yeah, he when has. He back in the past, he's, I've seen him be – I think Johnny Velasquez is riding at the top of his game still. I just I just haven't seen that this year so far with JJ. Maybe we'll see it tomorrow. 
And maybe if it's a good time, I mean, maybe that's what Bill Mott, again, Bill Mott knows horse racing better than I do. Um, and certainly uh, J.J. has been on, let's see, in, in, in this race, He's only ridden. Um, he's only ridden one one other horse. He's only ridden the, the the Pletcher horse. A lot of times when you see JJ, he's ridden five horses in a race. On a, <laughs> yeah, a race like yeah, this. yeah, that's and true. Makes, uh, the, the, the one that he thinks has the best chance. So that's not the case in this one. Uh, but you know, Johnny Velasquez has ridden a few horses uh, as well. And and you know, it's interesting that. JJ and Velasquez are both in the race, and Pletcher's got a horse, and neither of those jockeys are riding. For That's Pletcher. a good point. That's a really good point. You're right. You're right. I hadn't even noticed but, that. Yeah. But they are riding for other Hall of Famers. Yeah. Shug yep. and Bill Pye. So it's yeah. not like they chose, you know, some obscure trainer who's on their way up. And then, of course, Saez is riding for service, and they've been doing really well together, I think. Um, well, service you know, they, service is winning at forty five percent down there. I mean, yeah. that's, that's unbelievable. Yeah. In fact, they're doing so, they're doing less well than he's doing without Saez. He's, yeah, they're that's winning right. percent <laughs> But that's still pretty impressive. So you know, like you said, that horse is going to be near. Or it, so the question is, do you see um, Saez and JJ scrimmaging? Do you yeah. see? Yeah. Do you see Johnny V keeping Code of Honor a little closer? Do you see the others kind of being whatever we would say mid-pack? There's some horses that I don't believe belong in the race, but they're there for uh, for whatever reason. For whatever reason, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't see Hardbell. Um, I don't see Hardbell, you know, being a factor. I think Mc, Kenny McPeak with you know Hernandez. They obviously are coming off the Holy Bill win. That was a nice race. Long shot. Could they get better? Will the horse bounce? Will the horse improve? Is he you know, Kenny McPeak, he had Sarava, right? Remember? Yeah, uh, for sure. 70 to 1. Seven, I think he was yeah. the Sir Barton on the undercard of the Preakness mm-hmm. that year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he closed on a track that nobody closed all day. There was a bias, a very big speed oh, favoring okay. by it. That main track at Aqueduct is a tiring surface, I, I think. Anyway, right. that's my opinion about it. Um, I agree, and so you know he's so, and he was definitely he was moving. He was you know I watched the replay of the Fountain of Youth again this morning, and he was Bourbon oh, yeah. War was full of run in the stretch. You know, not only was he full of run in the oh, stretch, more pounds. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. He he was full of run in the stretch. Also, the other thing that he did in that race, John, which I was really impressed by, and I'm always impressed by with the young horses, he split horses coming into the stretch. Um, yeah, for a young horse to do that, that's that's important. Um, you know, I, I do want to ask you one thing. Uh, it's interesting. You're more familiar. I, I've not been to Gulfstream, the new Gulfstream, but Code of Honor we talked about a little bit, Shug's mm-hmm. Horse. The run into the first turn is actually pretty short at a mile and an eighth, is it not? Yeah, but it's, it's, um, it is. It is. It's a very short run in because it's, uh, it's start right at the, right at the starting line. You're almost like at the end of, the clubhouse. Okay. Uh, and you know he'll be you know that'll be interesting because it's a good point I think you're making is how well is he going to be positioned coming from the outside draw. Yeah, yeah. I mean he was inside at the Fountain of Youth and he, he it was a great ride by by Johnny V and he's training well since. Um, 
Shug is someone who personally I have never been able to get on the same page with. I I, I don't think it bothers him all that much. But uh, um, yeah, going from I, I always these root races, especially going from inside to outside or outside to inside, that's something that always kind of catches my eye. And with the short run into the turn, you know, he's gonna he's gonna lose some ground that he didn't lose in this last race anyway. Let's put it that way. Well, and you know, the point that I make is they're all starting to carry. Now, now they're going to start carrying some weight. That's a good point too. You've been enjoying your racing with 115, 116 pounds. Now, you know you're at 122. Uh, everybody's carrying 122. Who's who's been able to carry it? Well, you know, I look at and I say, okay, well, the two current Pletcher's horses. He has carried it. Yeah, yeah. It's a good point. That's a really um, good point. You know, Harvey Wallbanger has never carried more than 119 pounds. Uh, Bourbon War seems like maybe able to carry the weight, uh, and you know, does do you think six pounds matters? I do. I do. Yeah, it. it definitely matters. Yeah, people. That's you one. Know, you know, to your point, yeah. if you're not getting a good trip and you got the extra weight, and you don't get the po- you don't get the positioning during the race, the race doesn't kind of go in, in your favor as a, as a jockey or in the, in the horse's running style. Um, you know, I think that uh, there's no doubt maximum security can carry the weight already did and, 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 and dominated but you know also you know at seven furlongs against he's beating cheaper he's beating cheaper yeah much weaker company yeah. right but yeah. horses never lost the golf stream <laughs> and right? it's tr- i mean yeah and the num- and, the, and the buyers just keep getting better i mean they jumped off the page with the 102 um in the seven furlong race and that was actually a pretty good i mean once that's a fast time that's a fast horse that is a fast horse to win by. And that's a really hot. That's a really hot trainer and a really hot jockey. Yeah, I'm just. So, I'm, I'm trying to do the math here. He's 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 54 for 74 in the money. Uh, that's pretty good. Right. I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you cash the show bet. Yeah. Buy, yeah. The, buy a show ticket and go cash it. Do a show parlay on Jason's service. Just just yeah. a, you and Damien tomorrow. Just show parlay Jason's service. You'll be in good that's shape. We're gonna do, we're gonna run it. We may run that through the entire. Well, to, I, this is the last weekend of the championship meet. But yes. uh, yeah. You know, but we should be watching him wherever he is and just betting hard to show yeah. but uh yeah so i mean i i don't think that um i don't think that it's going to be a disappoint i don't think we're going to be disappointed by uh driving over and getting with the crowd i think we're going to enjoy this race i think it's going to be a really good enjoyable hopefully thrilling uh race i think there's enough matchup in this and i think that we'll see which horses will go forward Maybe one reason why I enjoyed our discussion so much, besides the fact that John is an excellent and enjoyable raconteur, is that we both ended up on the same long shot. We'll see what happens tomorrow. Thanks to John for his time and his insights. That's going to do it for another edition of the Can Do Horse Racing Podcast. Next week, we'll be joined by racing's regular guy, John Engelhart, a fun and enjoyable interview. John McCarthy will rejoin us for a great Florida Derby big score story from the past, and Scott Carson is going to join us to talk about one of the final Kentucky Derby preps on the calendar. In the meantime, good luck with your picks this weekend, and may the horse be with you.